Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Inna alhamda lillahi nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'ghfiruhu wa nasta'hdihu wa na'udhu billahi من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا فمن يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله ثم اما بعد السلام عليكم this book that we're covering is about practical easy to implement spiritual wisdom And today we're covering one of those concepts that is so identified with Islam but is so abused by Muslims. We're talking about the sunnah, right? The sunnah. You know, the sunnah it literally means the way, right? The lived example of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. However, the reason I refer to it as abused You know the sunnah is the the lived example of the prophet Muhammad and may may God bless him and 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 send him peace but we tend to reference it only when talking about superficialities how we dress the hand with which we eat how we enter the mosque how we exit the mosque wearing white clothes how we comb our hair or not um how we wear our trousers how we wear our facial hair these are things that are no doubt you know they they have prophetic examples but the sunanul huda the prophetic ways of guidance are much more significant than those madhahir those outward expressions you know those those states of being those are deeper expressions of the sunnah so ibn ta'allah he says wal khufiya wal khafiya the inward sunnah and ta'taqid al jama'a fi salatika wa tadabbura fi qira'atika fa idha fa'alta ta'ah ka salati wal qira'ati wa lam tajid fiha jama'an wa la tadabburan فاعلم ان بك مرضا باطنا من كبر او عجب او غير ذلك he says when you pray to god you should intend to sincerely communion with god to be with god you know the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam peace be upon him he used to refer to prayer as munajah intimate conversation with god you know one scholar He said the reason we don't enjoy our prayers the reason that we pray and it's merely perfunctory just something we're doing an empty ritual just you know a set of postures movements but nothing through which we actually experience the divine is because we can't relax he said man just relax some of us are thinking about all of the punctilios all of the particulars of fiqh you know am i doing this right did i wash my hand the right way am i standing the right way am i pronouncing this the right way just relax and make your intention to be with the divine 
you know, um, one scholar, he said that the prophet, peace be upon him, he saw prayer as intimate conversation with his beloved. We see prayer as something we do to absolve ourselves before a harsh taskmaster of a God. How can you pray as the prophet prayed if this is the way you understand God, right? Just relax, intend to be with him. You know, once the prophet, peace be upon him, slept past prayer. It was the time of Fajr. For those of us who sometimes sleep past dawn prayer, I want to inform you, even the prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, may God bless him and grant him peace. He slept past the morning prayer. And because he was the messenger of God, Everybody waited. They were sitting in the mosque and they were waiting for him to come out because maybe if he didn't come out, he was going to tell them, you know, there is no more dawn prayer. They wouldn't do. When he was there, he was the living embodiment of the will of God. So if he doesn't come out to pray, no one's going to say, okay, look, let's just pray. Obviously he's asleep. Maybe, maybe we don't have to pray dawn prayer anymore. Let's just wait for him. So the sun comes up. He comes out of his house. Everyone is panicked. Oh man, we just missed dawn prayer. The prophet just missed dawn prayer. The prophet looks at Bilal, may God be pleased with him, and he says, Yeah, Bilal, arihna binida Oh Bilal, bring tranquility to our souls by calling us to prayer. That this is the way the prophet understood prayer. It was something that brought tranquility to his soul. Something that brought equanimity to his soul. If I'm using a lot of fancy words, forgive me. I just came back from Stanford. Forgive me. I was using all my fancy words out there. He saw it as something that brought stillness to his soul. Not a task, a chore that he had to check off so that he could be a good person, but rather something he enjoyed doing. Then he says, And you actually find reflection in your recitation of the book of God, right? Many of us, we recite the Quran, it's bulbul. We're reciting just like a parrot, like a bird, just reading through. Sometimes I think we have quantitative goals, I want to read this much every day, especially in Ramadan. I want to finish this month. I want to finish by this time. What if I told you the affair of reading Quran, connecting with scripture, it is not one where quantity matters. It is one where quality matters. You know, there's a debate, and it's uh, an interesting debate among many of the early scholars of Islam who was the most knowledgeable person concerning the Quran in the early community? Some people say Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. And some people say Abdullah ibn Abbas, that he was more knowledgeable. Some say that he was more knowledgeable. However you, whatever position you take there, Abdullah ibn Abbas was very knowledgeable concerning the Quran. He was even given the name Hibrul Ummah, the rabbi of the Ummah. He was also given the name Harajuman al-Quran, the principal interpreter of the Quran. But he had a very peculiar habit. Whenever he would pray, he would lead like for a dawn prayer or a sunset prayer or night prayer. Those prayers where you recite out loud, his prayers were always very short. 
his prayers were very short. He would he might use Surah Al-Ikhlas, like the 112th chapter of the Quran, and maybe Surah Al-Nas. And somebody said, Ibn Abbas, no one knows the Quran like you. Give us more. He said, No, I use in my prayers that which I can be conscious for the entire period of my recitation. I'm not just trying to recite a large amount for the sake of reciting a large amount. I want to recite and actually contemplate what I'm reciting. Think about what I'm reading. You know, one of our teachers, he said, to engage with the book of God is that when you read a verse where God is mentioning paradise, you stop and you ask him for paradise. When you read a verse where God is mentioning some station of moral excellence, you stop and you ask God to make you one of those people. If you read a verse and it says something about punishment or perdition, you stop and you ask God to save you, to deliver you from that perdition, from that punishment. Then Ibn Ta'ilah, he says, if you are doing acts of obedience, right? If you're praying, if you're fasting, if you're reading the book of God, if you're working on your heart, working on yourself, and you don't find any connection, you don't find any connection, and you don't find any reflection, no that you are afflicted with some internal condition that is making it difficult for you to experience the true benefit of these acts of obedience. He said, in that, you are like someone who is sick, that sugar has acquired a bitter taste in their mouth. Have you ever had the flu? And no matter what you eat, it just doesn't taste good, right? When that happens, there's nothing wrong with the food. It's not like, why is this food bland all of a sudden? It's nothing wrong. The food is the way it normally is. Your taste buds, because you're uh, infirm, because you're ill, your taste buds, you can't, you're not able to taste the flavor that is in the food. You can't taste the spices in the food. He said, such is the case of a person that prays and says, I pray, but I don't feel anything. He said, it's not, the, it's not that the prayer is somehow defective or that the prayer is somehow lacking in its spiritual significance. Rather, the issue is inside of you. And it reminds me of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. When a man came to him and he said, Ya Rasulullah, I have a very bad stomach ache. And the Prophet ﷺ said, go and eat some honey. There's a healing in honey. The man went, ate some honey, came back and said, now my stomach ache is worse. Worse than before. And the Prophet said, that God Almighty has spoken the truth. Your stomach is lying. 
take the honey again. The man took more honey. His stomach became even worse than before, right? And he said, it's even worse than before. Sadaqallah al-Azim wa batnuk. God Almighty has spoken the truth. Your stomach is lying. Take some more honey. The man took the honey a third time and he was cured. Why am I mentioning this? If you pray, right? If you fast for the sake of God, if you read scripture for the sake of God and you feel like I don't feel anything, you know, sadaqallah al-Azim. God Almighty has spoken the truth. Prayer is an effective way of being near to him. Prayer is an effective way of experiencing the divine. Something inside of you is preventing your benefiting from prayer. But don't turn away from prayer because you don't feel anything. He says, God Almighty has said that I will turn away from my signs those who persist arrogantly in the earth without right. Meaning that being arrogant is a surefire way to be turned away from the signs of God. The Prophet ﷺ, he said in an authentic hadith, Man kana inda qalbihi min al-kibr la al-jannah. Whoever has even an atom's weight of arrogance in her heart, in his heart, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there was a very well-dressed man there, and he said, Ya Rasulullah, but what about a, a, someone that likes their clothes to be really nice? What about someone who likes to wear really nice shoes? Is this something that makes a person arrogant, right? And the Prophet والسلام, said, Inna Allah jameelun wa jamal. God is beautiful, right? Why hasn't anyone written a book on that? God is beautiful. Wa jamal, and he loves beauty, right? Beautify your clothes, beautify your spaces. This does not make you an arrogant person. Beauty is truth's splendor. Arrogance? Looking down on other people. I'm better than you. Right? My maqam is higher than yours. I know more than you. Right? Rejecting the truth when it's presented to you. That you're so arrogant, you can't admit when you're wrong. You're so arrogant, you can accept truth when it comes from someone else. This is arrogance. Here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, if you are afflicted with that condition, you might find that prayer, you don't feel it. Fasting, 
you don't feel it. Reading the Quran, you don't feel it. It's not that prayer has become defective or that fasting has become defective or that reading the book of God has become defective. No, there's something internal that you need to cleanse and then you will find the benefit in those things. He says, فَيَكُونُ مِثَالُكَ كَالْمَحْمُومِ الَّذِي يَجِدُ فِي فَمِهِ أَسُّكَرَ مُرًّا فَالْمَعَصِيَةُ مَعَ الظُّلِّ وَالْإِفْتِقَارِ خَيْرٌ مِنَ الطَّاعَةِ مَعَ الْعِزِّ وَالْإِسْتِكْبَارِ He said, but, and this is, mashallah, he's giving us great hope, right? Because it's very easy to read a book like this. Here's something like that and become very afraid for yourself. When I read something like that, I'm like, okay, that's it. The class is over. My life is over. But then he gives us something. He says, but don't worry about it. If this is where you find yourself, know that to be in a state of disobedience, but to be brokenhearted over your disobedience, to be in a state of weakness in your faith, but to be iftiqar is to feel neediness, to feel fakr, to feel neediness. This is better for you than to do something good and to have that good accompanied by a feeling of izz. Look at me, I'm so good. Look at me, I'm so righteous. Look at me, I'm so pious. Well, istikbar and arrogance. Let me say that one more time. Let me put that together because I want you to reflect upon that. That to do something bad, to make a mistake, to commit a sin, to be in a state of weakness, but that weakness is accompanied by a feeling of humility. Man, I'm, I really blew that. I really messed that up. This is better for you than to do something good and to have that good action accompanied by a feeling of pride. Look at me. Look at how righteous I am. Look at how pious I am, right? Look at how good I am. That's worse for you, right? He says, قال الله تعالى حكاية عن إبراهيم الخليل عليه وعلى نبينا محمد أفضل الصلاة وأتم الصلام فمن تبعني فإنه مني إبراهيم said whoever follows me then they're from me right فمفهوم من مفهوم هذا أن من لم يتبعه لم يتبعه ليس منه وقال الله تعالى حكاية عن نوح عليه وعلى نبينا المصطفى أزكى الصلاة والسلام إن ابني من أهلي so نوح he said my my son is from me you know this story of نوح is a very, very powerful story. 
And for people that have children, this story is a great reminder that you might try as hard as you can to provide your children with a good example. And in spite of everything that you try, your children might still choose something different than what you want for them. The proof of that is Noah, Noah. This, he was not only a messenger of God, he was from the Ulul Azam, those messengers of great resolve. And one of the things we believe about God's messengers is that they are ma'asumun min al-khat. They're divinely protected from making mistakes. So the son of Noah, the son of Noah, he had a good role model in his father. He had a good role model in his father. In spite of that, when the flood waters began to rise, and his father said to him, yeah, my son, come aboard the ship, ride with us. Right? There's no protection for you on this day except with us. His son said, nah, dad, I don't believe that. I have a different path. I'm going to the Jebel. I'm going to the mountain. Right? He was using, you know, uh, reason. Right? If the flood waters are rising, I will be saved by going to the highest place that I can reach. And he ended up perishing in that flood. And when Noah said to God, but you promised to deliver me and my family. God said to him, he was not from your family because he chose something different. Right? He chose something different. فَأَجَابَهُ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَ بِقَوْلِهِ قَالَ يَا نُوحِ إِنَّهُ لَيْسَ مِنْ أَهْلِكَ He wasn't from your family. إِنَّهُ عَمَلٌ غَيْرُ صَالِحِ Because he did things that were not righteous. He, he decided to be, you know, um, unrighteous. <clears throat> فَالْمُتَابَعَةُ تَجْعَلُ التَّابِعَةِ كَأَنَّهُ جُزْءٌ مِنَ الْمَتْبُوعِ وَإِنْ كَانَ أَجْنَبِيًّا كَالسَّلْمَانَ الْفَارِسِي رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهِ لِقَوْلِهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ سَلْمَانُ مِنَّا أَهْلُ الْبَيْتِ He said, so when you're thinking about outwardly being connected to somebody and inwardly being connected to someone. What connects you to someone outwardly could be being from the same family, right? It could be studying in the same place. You know, it's like um, if I were to stand up and brag and say, I went to Azhar, I went to Azhar, I went to Azhar. Maybe I did go through Azhar, but the much more important question, does Azhar go through me? This is the important question. The same thing applies to every other branch and field of knowledge. You might say, I went to Northwestern. 
I went to Harvard. I went to Loyola. I went to DePaul. I went to U Chicago. But does the best of those institutions go through you? This is really the question. Not that you went to them. Because we can be outwardly associated with something or in very close proximity to something and inwardly have no connection to that thing. This is why he's mentioning Nuh and his son. They were connected by, I mean, blood. This was his son. But the inward connection was not there because he did not follow his father. Right? He said, when you follow someone, even if you're not related to them by blood, you're related to them. He said, proof of this is what the Prophet said concerning Salman al-Farisi. Salman was Persian. He was not Arab. But the Prophet said, Salman is from my family. Not because they were connected by Iraq, by you know, blood. They were connected by what? Salman was a loyal follower of the Prophet This is what makes us, you know, a part of what we follow, right? That we actually do what it is they would have us do. You know, when I was in Yemen, you know, I used to live in Yemen. And I loved my time in Yemen. But being young students, sometimes we would stay up late after Salat al-Isha. We would stay up late after the night prayer. All of the students would gather around and all of them would start telling stories about the greatness of their teachers. One would say, my teacher is so great. He was in two places at once. SubhanAllah. Another would say, my teacher was so great. He visited Indonesia. A lion escaped from the zoo. He grabbed the lion by the ear and said, Bismillah, and walked him back in the cage. One said, my teacher is so great. One night I was walking home and I seen him flying over the dome of the masjid. I said, you saw him? He said, I saw him. I said, what did you say? I said, salam alaikum. I said, what did he say? He said, wa alaikum salam. <laughs> right? We would, people, they would do this every night. And alhamdulillah, one of the teachers, he saw them doing this and he must have been listening. And he said, stop telling so many stories and let your stories tell you. The people you're talking about, if any of those things you're saying are true, I guarantee they didn't become those people staying up at night telling stories. They became those people by praying, working on their character, fasting, giving of their wealth, trying to, you know, refine themselves. So you might be from them in as much as you can tell these stories, but are you really from them? Do you actually do what they do, right? You know, SubhanAllah. You'll find, first I give you a spiritual example, 
Then I'll give you a vulgar example. Even when people brag and boast about being from certain places, person says, yeah, I'm, I'm from Inglewood. I'm from Rogers Park. I'm from Auburn Gresham. I'm from Bronzeville. I'm from this place. I'm from that place. Every time I hear somebody say, say, you know, saying that, I think to myself, subhanAllah, someone from this place must have did something that makes it a place you want to be associated with. You, on the other hand, just get to say that you're from there. You didn't do anything. Somebody did something so that you want to tell people, I'm from Rogers Park. Somebody from Rogers Park must have done something that makes that something you say. You haven't done anything. You're just a beneficiary of their legacy. This is how it is with us in every nisbah that we claim. I'm an Azhari. Are you really an Azhari? You just went to school there. You haven't done anything. I'm a Qadiri. Are you really an, an inheritor of Sheikh Abdul Qadir and Jilani's legacy? Or do you just get to say that you're associated with this person? I'm a Shadali. Are you really? Or do you just get to claim affiliation with these people? I'm a Tijani. Are you really? Or do you just get to claim affiliation with these people? So here he's saying outward connection is through all of those things that we're saying. Inward connection is through really emulating those people, right? He continues. وَلَكِنْ بِالْمُتَابَعَةِ قَالَ عَنْهُ تَعْلِيمًا كَمَا أَنَّ الْمُتَابَعَةَ تُثْبِتُ الْإِتِّصَالَ كَذَلِكَ عَدْمَهَا يُثْبِتُ الْإِنْفِصَالَ Ibn Ta'ilah, his prose is so beautiful. Just as following someone means that you're connected to them, not following them means that you're separated from them. Right? If you don't actually follow them, then you're not connected to them. He continues, قَدْ جَمَعَ اللَّهُ الْخَيْرَ كُلَّهُ فِي بَيْتٍ وَجَعَلَ مِفْتَاحَهُ مُتَابَعَةِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ He said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has taken all of goodness and placed it in a house. And Allah has made the keys to that house following the messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You know, I've told this story at least a hundred times. So I beg your indulgence if you've heard me tell the story. But whenever I think about goodness and following the Prophet Muhammad alayhi I think about a story that Dr. Sherman Jackson told me. He told me that he knew a brother who married a woman that had children, but the brother himself 
did not have any children. And he thought that becoming a stepfather would be easier than he found it to be. Step parenting really challenged him on a number of levels. He said, one, he was being called upon to serve this child, but he hadn't developed the emotional connection to the child that would make the service easy, right? See, with our own children, we have an emotional connection to them that makes doing their khidmah very easy. It's my child. It's like when I'm on a plane. When, I, when my children were younger, Najashi and Makita could be screaming on the plane. It wouldn't even bother me. I could just read my book. But if someone else's children were screaming, man, can they do something about that kid? Why the difference? Because those are my children. Those are my children, right? He says, so I had, to, I had to serve this child, but I didn't really have an emotional connection to the child. He said, the second thing, and you know, I hope no one is offended by this, but this is real. He said, the child reminded him of the romantic connection that his wife had with her ex-husband, right? Because the child looked just like his father, right? So this was like a constant reminder that, you know, she was in love with someone before me. And they shared that love. And this child is a product of that love. And he said that there was something in his ghayra, something in his, like, it just made him feel insecure. Like, hmm. Because at the time, he did not have any children with that woman. So it's like, there's a man with whom you share more of a bond in this child than you share with me. And that just hurt him. And he said, whenever the child would even call his name, it was like somebody scratching a chalkboard. And Dr. Jackson said that one Saturday morning, I think, he was reading the seerah of Ibn Kathir. And he came to a vignette in the seerah shortly after Uhud, after the passing of Abu Salama, when the Prophet said to Um Salama, Um Salama, have faith. Allah could give you a husband even better than Abu Salama. And Um Salama said, who could ever be better than Abu Salama? There's no one better than Abu Salama. And the Prophet ﷺ said, you know, I am the messenger of Allah. No, this is what, I am the messenger of Allah. And, you know, that statement, subhanAllah, you know, when I was in Egypt, in the third year of my studies, my wife passed away, Allah yirhamuha, and she's buried there in Egypt. And one Egyptian brother with whom I was very close, he said to me while consoling me, minha. May Allah give you even better. And I blew up at him. Americans, we don't say that. that that's, I, I know you probably mean it in a good way, but that's just not something that we say. And he was like, okay, I didn't, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean it like that. But then after I calmed down, he said, 
any good that you experienced from her, she was only the wasila of that good. The source, the masdar of that good was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And even though she has gone back to her Lord, Allah is still giving. Allah is still giving. And when he said that, I just broke down. The Prophet said to Umm Salama, Allah could give you someone even better. She said, who could be better than my late husband? I am the messenger of God. Then she said, are you suggesting that you and I could be married? The Prophet said, yes, this is what I'm suggesting. And then she said, no. It's not that I find the idea of being with you. It's not that I find the idea of being with you off-putting. I just have my reasons. I just don't think we would work well as a couple. Now, I want you to pause for a minute. This tells you everything you need to know about the leadership of the Prophet That a woman standing in his presence, he's proposing to her. She believes that he receives revelation from God, from a top seven heavens. And she feels completely confident to tell him, you are good enough to be my prophet, but I don't think I want you as my husband. And she knows that she will not be invalidated. She will not be coerced. This is what separates the messenger of God from every megalomaniacal cult leader. And the prophet says to her, what any man who proposes to a woman who's rejected says, why not? No, why not? Why won't you marry me? Why not? Why not? She said, I have three reasons. One, you're already married to other women. And I'm a very jealous woman. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very jealous woman. That's not going to work for me. Two, I'm not young. Right? If you're thinking that, you know, you want to marry somebody young, impressionable, I'm not a young woman. And three, I have children that I have to look after. The Prophet ﷺ said, as for your jealousy, I will ask Allah to help you with that. Brothers, don't try this at home. Man. Don't. Every time you teach the hadith, there's a brother thinking, oh, that's what I'm supposed to stop. That's what I was just teaching this in the Bay. That's what I'm supposed, you know, right? But who are my husbands out there? Who are my husbands out there? Who are my men out there that maybe aspire to be husbands one day? Pay very close attention to this. You know what I see in this hadith? The Prophet ﷺ, he respected her integrity as a woman. You said that you did not like something. I'm not going to try and convince you to like it. Right? I'm not going to sit offering a dissertation defense and this is in the Quran and Suleiman did it. Why can't I do it? This is, you know, Dawood did it. What's wrong with me? You said that you don't like it. Full stop, respect. No guilt, no guilting, no shaming. You don't like it, respect. The only thing I can offer is that I will ask God to help you accept it. This is emotional intelligence. 
I'm not going to badger you. I'm not going to, you know, talk about this ad nauseum to try and make you accept it. You don't like this. I understand that. I will ask God to help you accept it. That's what I will do. He said, as for the fact that you are not young, I appreciate your maturity. I'm not young. And he said, as for the fact that you have children, they will be like my children. I will treat them like my children. Then she agreed to marry the Prophet Dr. Jackson said that he picked up the phone. He called this brother. He narrated the entire story to him. And he heard this man like, like crying. The man was like, if the Prophet could open his heart and accept children that were not biologically his, and I want to follow him, then I can open my heart and accept children that are not biologically mine. This is mutaba'atun nabiyyi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. I was teaching downtown the Shama'il Muhammadiyya wa Khisla Mustafawiyya of Imam At-Tirmidhi. I see this hadith. It's on the chapter of how the Prophet ate, alayhi wasallam, his, his food. Abdullah ibn Abi Salama, the son of Abu Salama, is standing at the door. The Prophet says to him, Ya Bunaya, Karib Minni, right? Ya Bunaya Ta'ala, oh my son, come here, come here, come here. Sammi, say Bismillah, wa kul bi yaminik, eat with your right hand. Wa kul mimma yalik, eat what is in front of you. You know, a simple hadith. I'm like getting a tear in my eye. And my students are like, why are you crying? I said, because the Prophet Sallallahu told Um Salama that he was going to treat her children like they were his children. And there he was in a completely unrelated hadith saying, oh, my dear son, ya bunayya, ta'ala, come here, come here. Let me teach you something. He actually fulfilled his promise to her, right? This is following the Prophet not just wearing white clothes or eating with your right hand or entering the masjid with your right foot, right? But becoming something more, becoming something greater, right? Becoming more generous, giving more of yourself. This is following the Prophet He says, He says, He said, so follow. Look at what the first thing he says about the sunnah. Follow the sunnah by being content with what God gives you. You want to follow the sunnah of the Prophet The first thing he mentions is not the melbas. The first thing is not your clothes. 
You want to follow the Prophet The first thing he mentions is not the lihya, not the beard. The first thing he mentions is qana'ah, be content, right? The Prophet ﷺ, he said in an authentic hadith, he said, there are three people that God will not turn to in mercy on the day of judgment. And one of them, من whoever drags their garment out of arrogance. Now you have to understand this. Cloth was very scarce at that time. And if a person wanted to display their wealth in a very vain way, they would make their undergarments very long and drag on the ground, kind of like the train of an exquisite gown. Think like if a couturier makes an exquisite gown, they make the train very long. This shows what? The exquisiteness of the gown. People would do that with their clothes. So the Prophet والسلام, said, God does not like that, right? So shorten, wear the, what's wear, the, wear the garment in the middle of the shin if you're doing that out of arrogance. One of our teachers, he said, you have young people now. He grows his beard. He lengthens his beard, he shortens his undergarment, but in his heart is the arrogance of Pharaoh, is the arrogance of Pharaoh. So when Ibn Ta'ilah is talking about following the Prophet, he's not talking about just those madahir, those externalities. The first thing he says, bil be content with what you have. You know, if you want a sunnah of the Prophet that all of us should try to implement, they say the Prophet never criticized food. Try that one. He never criticized food. No one ever served him food for him to say, mashallah, but I'm a little too salty. No, you're laughing because it would be hard to even imagine the Messenger of Allah doing that. Hmm. He could have seasoned it a little more. No, he, he, and they said he did not excessively praise food. Ah, hikmah nabawiyah. Because if he excessively praised some food, people he didn't excessively praise would start to feel, oh man, he didn't praise my food. Right? Think about, you know, it's, I, I've seen that before, right? You go to someone's house and you're just, you're just gushing over the food and maybe someone else whose guest you've been is also in attendance and they're like, I guess you didn't like my food that much because when I served you food, you didn't have all of those adjectives. You just said, Jazakallah khair. But his food, you talked about it for 15 minutes. So he said, the Prophet he did not criticize food. He did not excessively praise food, right? Be content with what God gives you. Allah Ta'ala says what? وَلَا إِن شَكَرْتُمْ لَأَزِيدَنَّكُمْ وَلَا إِن كَفَرْتُمْ فَإِنَّ عَذَابِ لَشَدِيدٌ If you give thanks for what you have, 
God will increase you in what you have. You know, one of the tafasir that I love about this, we're talking linguistic tafasir, baydawi, sawi, linguistic tafasir. We think that this only applies to material things. Right? If you give thanks for the money you have, you'll get more money. Right? That's one of those ayat that you see on the cash register at somebody's store. Right? It also refers to hidayah and irshad. If you give thanks to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for what you have, God will give you more. You know, one of our teachers, he said, you want to be a spiritually elevated person? Just put into practice what you know. And God will teach you. God will teach you what you do not know. Just do what you know. Just do what you know to be good. And God will teach you what you don't know. He says, he said, you want to emulate the prophet? You want a deep connection with the sunnah, not just a cheap connection with the sunnah? Be content. Be a zahid. Zuhd. Zuhd is a very difficult word to translate. Zuhd, it really means to undervalue something. Right to undervalue it, to, to, to not place ultimate value in something. Is dunya you Be a zahid in the dunya, Allah will love you. Right? It means that you don't place your ultimate aspirations. Right, your ultimate hopes are not in the life of this world. Doesn't mean that you don't want to succeed. Doesn't mean that you have to actually live in poverty. It means that the dunya is not my primary concern. Right? You know, they came to Sayyidina Abu Bakr, and somebody had the, someone had the uh, insight to ask him, how did you become what it is you became? How, like, how did you become you? And he said, if I was given a choice of something, I chose that which would benefit me in the akhirah. Right, he's that's zuhud. If I was given the choice of something that, if I had an ultimatum, two mutually exclusive things, one would help me in this world, the other would help me in the next. I always chose that which would help me in the next. That's zuhud, right? You don't have to wear the muraka'at. You don't have to wear a garment with patches. 
You don't have to, you know, uh, be a person that, you know, in fact, we say, if you have ni'mah, if you have blessing, and you're shakir, you're grateful, you're equal to the person that has ibtila, has test, and they're sabir, they're patient. You don't have to be poor. You don't have to, you know, some people, to show their zuhud, they used to wear patched garments, muraka'at. They wear a patched garment to show I'm a zahid. And there's a famous story that Abu al-Hasan al-Shadili was sitting in the masjid. And he was wearing a jubba made of fur. He was wearing a jubba made of fur, which even back then, you know, like, don't, don't tell Peter, don't tell Peter, don't tell Peter. Don't tell. This, this was before Peter. This was before Peter, right? He was wearing a jubba made of fur. And there was one man that thought this was very extravagant. And he said to him, and this man had a patched garment. He had a garment that was like, he was intentionally showing what's called mendicancy. Someone that, you know, wore a garment that intentionally indicated I'm poor. Like, I'm, you know, he was doing this on purpose, right? He had taken almost like a vow of poverty, like in the Catholic tradition, right? And he came to Abu Hassan al-Shadili and he said, how can you worship God in something like that? Right? That, I mean, that's a bold question. He said, how can you worship God wearing something like that? And Abu al-Hasan al-Shadili said, when I have this on, nobody comes to me asking me if I need any money so I can focus on worshiping God because clearly I look like I'm doing okay. When you're wearing that, everybody rushes to you to give you money, right? Because you look like you need money. So my question is, how can you worship God in that? When everyone will bring dunya to you when you're wearing that. Everyone will come to you and say, here, have some money. You look like you need money. Here, take some money, right? And there's nothing wrong with how anyone dresses. I'm only using the story to elucidate Zuhud is not about what's in your bank account. It's not about what's in your hand. It's about what's in your heart. Or as one brother that I think has a gift of turning a phrase. I love this. He said, Zuhud, it's not about what you own. It's about what owns you. Right? It's not about what you own. It's about what owns you. And if you are a person that you can say, I, in that lillahi, we belong to God. I don't belong to my job. I don't belong to my money. I don't belong to my status. I don't belong to my car. I don't belong to my house. Right? That's zuhud. It's not about what you own. It's about what owns you. He says, وَتَقَلُّلُ Taking less than you could. Taking less than you could. Not taking the maximum. Whenever, even in something that's permissible, don't take the maximum. This is the real sunnah. So I'll, I'll say this and I'll end. You want to know about the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ? This was one of the scariest explanations 
of the sunnah that I've ever received. One of our teachers told us, he said, in Ramadan, talking about taqallul, we go to the masjid and before our, you know, they call the adhan for maghrib and then we eat dates. If you go to a good, good masjid, little watermelon, some cut up, you know, uh, fruit. You might even have some uh, uh, samosas. Then we pray maghrib. Then we have iftar. He said the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, that little meal that you had before the prayer, that was his iftar. That was iftar. That's the iftar. He said there is a difference between the substance of the sunnah and the symbols of the sunnah. See, the substance of the sunnah is taqallul. Right? He said that little, you know, we eat that as just, an, that's not even iftar, that's just an appetizer. Right? That's just for like uh, tashweek. We go to the masjid and I've, I've seen people have a plate, six, seven samosas on there. This isn't even iftar. This is just, we're just getting started. You know, right? Whole plate of dates. Right? This isn't, this is, he said, the sunnah of the Prophet that, that is the iftar. That's taqallul. That is the iftar. There's nothing more than that. Right? That and then into his devotional focus for the evening. That's the substance of the sunnah. He said, what we enjoy, the symbols of the sunnah. Right? The jalabiyah, that's a symbol of the sunnah. The imamah, the turban, that's a symbol of the sunnah. It's beautiful. 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 We should do it. We should emulate it. Those are the madahir, the symbols of the sunnah. You want the substance of the sunnah? Qana'ah, contentment. Zuhud, abstinence in the world. Taqallul, minimizing. Substance of the sunnah. Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.